Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3 this morning. We're talking about baptism this morning, and it's an appropriate lead-in to this evening. This evening, we have Worship in the Round, and what that is is our opportunity for both groups, uh, the early service and this service, to come together, to come back at five, and you say, why come back? Well, you come back to sing together, you come back to worship together, but also we're going to observe a couple of baptisms, and it's, uh, there's a young man in our youth group that is being baptized, and then there's a gentleman uh, who also has been coming to our church a long time, who uh, I'm not going to embarrass right now, but um, both are going to be giving their testimonies this evening, and then entering into the, the waters of baptism to testify publicly that they love Jesus, just like we just sang, Jesus saved me. And we love to sing that out loud, don't we? Even together, doesn't it just feel powerful to do that? The reason that things like observing a baptism or we're going to take the Lord's Supper as well, why those things are powerful is because they're done in community. They're done live. They're done together. And that's church. Church is about being together, and it's about, watch this, coming public together. It's the idea that our testimony is not something that we hide. It's not something that we cover. It's not something that is, our testimony is not quarantined. Our testimony is not isolated. Our testimony is public. We are called in a day and age that is more and more hostile to the gospel, more and more hostile to anything conservative, more and more hostile to anything that's called exclusive. We're, we're to testify all the more that we know Jesus and we know that he is of another world. And guess what? He bought us with his blood and we're of another world. We're part of a different citizenship. We're not trying to be mean to people down here. We're not trying to cause trouble down here as Christians. We're supposed to live our faith out loud so the people can go with us to heaven one day. The gospel is exclusive. It's, it seems intolerant, right? Everybody is calling for tolerance in our day and age. Just prop up different identity groups and identity, um, you know, sort of cultism. But what we're saying is we're not talking about that. We're talking about an exclusive gospel that invites everyone from all different people groups, from all different nationalities, from all different countries all around the world throughout all of the ages, men, women, children, young people, older people, all are called, come, come, come to Jesus Christ. Come on the narrow road, come to heaven. That's what we're calling for. And we come together in unity to say that, to stand for that, to stand for truth together. And so this evening, I just want to, again, hit you with the teaser. Come back tonight at five. Haven't you been in your homes too much? Isn't it time to come together and gather for worship and gather to watch people be baptized, to watch um, watch us participate in the Lord's Supper together? Isn't that exciting? To hear the word of God together. 
Now, I want to be quick to say that for those who are infirmed, those who are immunocompromised, those who need to be home, those for professional reasons need to be home, I understand. And that, that's being deferential to do that um, for your own health and for the health of others. I understand those things, but those are the exceptions to the rule. We want to minister to you. We want to minister to all of you and those of you that are viewing online. We want to minister together as one big family. But I also want to champion what the Bible teaches in terms of the essential nature of coming together. It is so important to connect with people around the gospel. It's so important to connect in what we're going to call fellowship groups. It's so important to be known. Christianity is not being an island in yourself. It's not hiding. It's not being exclusive. Christianity is vulnerability. Vulnerability to God, vulnerability to each other, vulnerability to say, what's a job that I can do within the church? How can I minister? How can I carry the torch to the next generation, to children in children's ministry, in Awana, in Sunday school, in serving, in serving in multiple ways? And there'll be ways to serve in these fellowship groups. There's ways to serve in the community here. We want, to, we want to open the church back up and pioneer together with gospel vibrancy. And it comes with the reality of coming public, coming out into the open and saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. We're called children of the light, not of the darkness. We're called to be lights in the world. We're called to follow Jesus who called himself the light of the world. We're called to hold forth the word of life so we can sing together, pray together, bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Hear the word of God together, serve together. It's all from gathering. It's the mutual encouragement within the body of Christ. It's our witness to the world. Well, I want to bring this up in light of what Jesus does here in our passage, because Jesus is coming out of obscurity into the public. He's coming out of Nazareth into the wilderness, but the wilderness was not a place of isolation. The wilderness was actually a place of great public masses and crowds that were all gathered around John's baptism ministry. And Jesus was coming public to be baptized. He was coming public to testify of his faith. That's what's going on in our text that we have before us. It's Jesus who's making a public profession in the gospel. He's being public. The word baptism or baptist or baptizing is mentioned eight different ways in 17 verses throughout the chapter before us, chapter 3. It's an incredibly important topic in understanding that baptism is identifying with the truth of the gospel is what you need to bring to your own heart. Perhaps you need to consider whether you've been baptized or not and why and why haven't you so far come public with your testimony, both in terms of being dunked and speaking out what you believe. It is a very um, humbling thing to be baptized. It is. But that's what these masses were doing. That's what these groups were doing in mass coming out from Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding area, as verse five says. And that also is what Jesus is doing as he comes from Nazareth, comes from the north, 70 miles to find John the Baptist, John the baptizer out in the wilderness. He finds him over by the Dead Sea at the River Jordan. 
which is kind of a rushing river, probably out in a tributary off of that river to be baptized. Understanding why he had to do it could actually help unlock why you either need to be baptized or need to at least share your faith more in a public way. So if you're taking notes, you can follow and mark this as an outline. Jesus makes a public profession to reveal himself and his mission to save. He's making a public profession to reveal himself and his mission to save. And under that, this is Jesus' public profession. We're going to hear Jesus' public profession followed by another public profession. So Jesus' public profession first. Listen as I read verses 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. What we have here is on the face of things, Jesus is coming to be baptized and John's trying to prevent him. It says he was he would have been ongoingly preventing him. This is not right for you to be baptized. It reminds you of Peter who's saying, you know, oh, Lord, you're not going to go to the cross. It's these moments where somebody knows better than Jesus and or they think they do. And John the Baptist is saying, no, this cannot be right. People coming from Galilee were rare to this occasion. Most were coming from the religious center of Jerusalem in rebellion to a works-based, merit-based, false religion in the name of old covenant Judaism that had been corrupted into a works-based theology. And they were rejecting that. People were coming in mass to John the baptizer and probably hearing him preach for about six months out in the wilderness in a baptism revival ministry. It was some form of a positive protest against false religion. But Jesus' arrival to this was striking, in particular to John. And it was out of obscurity. And I want to show you just in short order how, how wild this event really was for Jesus to just show up. Because John and Jesus grew up as sort of figureheads of the gospel. You have a pioneer who's saying the Messiah is coming. The king is coming. My whole life is given to that. And Jesus, who is growing up as the king that we need, who has come, bringing the kingdom. And so these two people are coinciding together, really face to face as adults for the first time in their life. And so you have the messenger and you have the one who is the message the way, the truth, and the life coming together in this moment. And it's all based in this baptism moment. One that's confusing to John. He's going, why are you coming to a baptism of repentance? Now, John, as we know, grew up in, a, in kind of a wild way. If you look at the story of Luke, he was the son of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah, who was the high priest or one of the high priests, who had always wanted a son. And he wanted a son to follow in his footsteps. At least he was always praying that his wife would conceive. And Elizabeth never did. She was aged and beyond childbearing years. And she was barren. And she was stigmatized in that culture for that. Unjustly so. But she couldn't have a child. One day Zechariah goes into the temple. It was his appointed time to do it. And an angel of the Lord is standing next to the altar. 
And the angel of the Lord turns out to be Gabriel. And Gabriel says, your prayer has been answered, Zechariah, because Elizabeth is going to be with child. And this is a child from the womb who will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Zechariah didn't believe the plan. He couldn't buy into it. He believed that Elizabeth was beyond childbearing years. And so Gabriel struck him mute, mute. And so he was unable to speak until John the Baptist would be born. So ultimately, Zechariah conceded and understood that um, John the Baptist would be the forerunner of the Messiah. There was prophecy over that. He wasn't in the dark about that. Elizabeth was with child, but was embarrassed in her aged years to be with child. So she hid herself for five months. And then ultimately, um, during that hiding period, she obviously was known to be pregnant because her cousin, Mary, who was also with child, amazingly, having been conceived a child by the Holy Spirit, Mary found this out and wanted to go to Elizabeth to visit her. And so Luke's gospel speaks of this, but Mary would have traveled all the way from Nazareth, a hundred miles past Jerusalem, down the Jordan um, pathway or the Jordan Valley sort of passageway, um, walking or riding, not sure how, to what was called the hill country. And so she went into the house of Zechariah, saw Elizabeth, and immediately the baby John leapt in Elizabeth's womb. Do you remember that? And it was because John was filled with the Holy Spirit supernaturally, even as a little baby in the womb. Luke 1.15, this is a definite right to life passage. This is a baby who is alive and a person and is named, and in this case, filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. It's incredible because he was in the presence of the woman who had conceived Christ by the Holy Spirit, Luke 1, 41. Suffice it to say, Mary and Elizabeth, both informed by angels, informed in their hearts, informed by prophecy, knew that they had very, very significant babies for the kingdom and for kingdom work. Now, they must have compared notes, and they did. They must have told their children about who they were, and I'm sure they did. But what was their grow-up story look, looking like? Their grow-up plan. John's grow-up plan, Luke 1.80. This is John the baptizer. He grew up and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So he's strong in spirit. And then at some point it was like, well, you're out in the wilderness. So he, I guess he was homeschooled. I'm not sure. But anyway, he, he was out there in the wilderness. He was destined to be a prophet, to take up the mantle for Elijah, to be out in the wilderness eating locusts, honey, camel's fur, leather belt, preacher. That was what his whole life was given to under a Nazarite vow. And then Luke 2.40, Jesus, he grew up, became strong, filled with wisdom. He's in Nazareth in a, you know, just an obscure little town outside of Galilee in favor with God. The favor of God was upon him. Around 12, I'm sure he went down um, with his parents at Passover and he was there and he was confounding the teachers. But after that, it says he increased in wisdom and stature in favor of God and man. And that's all we really know about Jesus. It's all we really know about John. But what we can surmise as we harmonize this with John 1.33, John's testimony, he said, I myself did not know him. I didn't know him till the baptism moment. They didn't know each other. This is sort of an amazing collision of, of time and space where the redemption mission is launching. Things are initiating in this moment. 
Jesus was brought up as a carpenter's son. He had half-brothers. He was just um, probably a tradesman doing his thing. And then suddenly he's on mission. John's been on mission. And here is this event. It says in um, John 1 verse 29 that right before the baptism, John sees Jesus and he knew that he was the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Spirit of God told him that. He knew. And then after he baptized him, he repeated it again the next day. Behold the Lamb of God. John um, says that right after in John chapter 1. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But even though John knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God, maybe especially because John knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God, he did not want to baptize him. Remember the the passage from last week, I baptize with water, but he will baptize by the Holy Spirit and fire. There's judgment coming. He's the judge. He's the heart changing doctor. He's the one who transforms and baptizes on the inside. I'm the preacher who's representing that and baptizing you on the outside. I'm not supposed to do it. Jesus is supposed to give me something. I'm not supposed to give him something. I'm not worthy to do it. Pharisees, Sadducees, you are not worthy to be baptized by me, but I am not worthy to baptize the Son of God. I'm not sure all of how much John knew about Jesus exactly until this event, but he knew that he was the sacrifice for sin, not someone in need of repenting of sin. He was clear. And that's why he was wanting to deter Jesus from doing this, from going through this. So why did Jesus have to be baptized? I believe he had to be baptized because Jesus did get baptized, because he overrode John's deterring or prevention. He overrode it. John said in verse 14, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? It's completely conflicted. So why did Jesus have to be baptized? Here's two subpoints under point one, Jesus' public profession. His profession was simply this. First of all, Jesus came to solve your sin. You could add a word to that, solve your sin problem. Jesus came to solve sin. That's why he entered into the waters of baptism under a baptism of repentance. Jesus wasn't repenting. He was coming as redeemer. And the picture of immersion is the picture of full and complete identification and commitment to what it symbolizes. The waters of baptism under John symbolized being washed from sin And Jesus is the one who washes away your sin. He entered into the waters of baptism to enter into your sin and enter into your shame, to identify with your sin and identify with your shame. Second Corinthians says, chapter five, verse 21 says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, who was perfect, who's innocent, who's the lamb, takes on your sin. And it's a picture of that where he's immersed in the waters of baptism in the name of repentance. He is the solution for sin. Israel understood that they were in sin. That's why they were participating in this baptism of repentance. There were no baptistries in the temple. 
There were, they didn't exist. It didn't happen. The only baptism that had happened in Israel's old covenant religion and faith was the baptism of a Gentile that was a proselyte baptism where somebody who was not a Jew believed in the God of the Jews and said, I want to identify with the people of God under the God of the Jews. And so I'm going to immerse myself into this commitment. And thousands of people, people in droves and mass were coming out, leaving the religious center saying, I'm identifying as if I'm a Gentile starting anew in a refresh way, in a fresh way saying, I have a new beginning. I'm repenting of this false version of my old religion where the old covenant system had, had been contorted and twisted into a merit-based theology where you're earning your way to God. I'm rejecting that and I'm repenting of my sin and I'm identifying with God in this way. Well, Jesus understood that they were coming clean, but he was stating that he was the answer. He's the better Israel. He's the new beginning. He's the one who transforms someone from the inside out. There's a lot of parallels that are built in Matthew between Israel and between Jesus. There really, there really are. Back in Matthew chapter 2, there's the reference in verse 15 where Jesus um, is called out of Egypt. I have called my son. It's, it's a reference from Hosea 11.1. 1. Well, remember the nation of Israel came out of Egypt. And so it's parallelism to say just as Israel was rescued and redeemed from Egypt, from that bondage, Jesus is the redeemer who comes out of Egypt. Then there is the sad scene of um, chapter 218 where you remember Herod had committed genocide in Bethlehem, killing probably 30 young baby boys trying to snuff out the Messiah and get the Messiah. Well, everybody's weeping in the town of Bethlehem and what's quoted there is Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 15, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Again, Israel, an Old Testament story, as you'll remember, in 587, they were deported from their homeland and sent into Babylonian captivity. Daniel, his three friends, all of them going. And many of them were stationed in Ramah, which was five miles due north of Jerusalem. They're in like a concentration camp, a, a containing, um, a container of people weeping together, getting ready to be deported into exile for 70 years. Well, Jesus now is coming for baptism to say, I'm the better Moses. I'm the redeemer. I'm redeeming you, Israel, in this new moment, as if you're passing through the Jordan, going into the promised land, going in through, in through the waters of baptism in new life. He's the solution for sin. He's the better Daniel who has rescued the nation of Israel from captivity. He sees their need to repent and affirms that by entering into the water of baptism. John knew he was a sinner. John wanted to elevate Christ and subordinate himself. He wasn't all the way clear on what Jesus meant by what he was doing. But that brings us to the second point, the second subpoint. Not only does Jesus come to solve sin, he also comes to make you whole. If you look back at Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, 
It says, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When Jesus said this, John consented. He says he consented. He said, okay, all right, uncle, I'll do it. I'll baptize you. I was preventing you. I did not want to do it, but I'm willing to do it because I'm seeing the full picture here. You're coming in solidarity with Israel's sin. You're identifying as the solution for sin. And you're also on mission to fully save believers. This includes Jews and Gentiles. Jesus came to the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles to bring full righteousness. Jesus wasn't confused as to why he was there. There's an apocryphal account in in the Gospel of Hebrews, which is an uninspired book um, from the intertestamental period. The early church father, Jerome, is quoting Mary as saying, hey, we need to come and half-brothers and Jesus and be baptized. And ultimately, Jesus is saying, um, do I need to be baptized? Am I sinful? Wait, am I confused? Did I just sin by being confused? It's something along those lines. Let me tell you this. Jesus was not confused at all by what he was doing. He was not waking up in the moment saying, oh, this is what's going on. No, Jesus was explaining why he was doing what he was doing in terms of the exact timing of this. Do you see this? He says, verse 15, let it be so now. Let it happen now. You might be confused about me coming for a baptism of repentance if it was just just any day on the calendar, but this is a day where I'm declaring publicly that I am the solution for sin and I am on mission to make believers righteous. Any believer who's ever been saved, Old Testament or New Testament, is made fully righteous, but Jesus is making this clear. This is his mission. Isaiah 53 has been called the Romans of the Old Testament. If you've read it in that way, there's so much good doctrine and theology of Christ there. Jesus is called despised, rejected, smitten, crushed, pierced as a lamb, led to the slaughter. He's a sacrifice for our sins, but he's the one that makes us completely righteous. In Isaiah 53, 11, listen to this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Speaking of God the Father. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be, here it is, accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Do you know what it means to be counted righteous? Do you know what it means to be made righteous for there to be a fulfill, to fulfill all righteousness on your behalf? You know what that means? It means that when Jesus looks at you, you are as righteous. When God looks at you, you are as righteous to him as his son is righteous to him. That's what that means. Does God know your sins? Yes. Does God know you're in process? Yes. Does God pick you up and meet you where you are? Yes. But in tandem with this, God has declared you to be righteous. Otherwise, there's no way he could promise to bring you home, right? Because you're going to sin again after you become saved. But because he has declared you righteous, he can promise to bring you home. It's called the great exchange. That's what it's called in Reformed theology. It's the idea that you have a deficit in your bank account against God and Christ's righteousness is 100% full in his bank account and there's a switch. 
Suddenly you dial it up on your phone and go, wow, I have 100% full righteousness. I thought I was in a deficit. There was a minus sign in my account, and now it's completely full to the brim beyond comparison to anything else. I'm completely set for all of eternity. That's what it means to be counted righteous in Christ. God declares you not just not guilty, but fully righteous in Jesus Christ. He sees Christ when he looks at you. He sees Christ overlaid on you in his glory and perfection. Jesus is identifying this publicly in his baptism. It's his full commitment. He's putting his foot into the water and his whole body into the water, by the way. We believe in full baptism here. And he's going down into the water to say, the mission has begun. I'm committed to not only forgive you, but to bring you all the way to glory. My commitment is full. My commitment is complete. And I'm committed to undergo the cross. That's what he was doing. John got a glimpse of this. And so that's why he said, I will consent. It says, then he consented. The word consent is the same word for forgive. It's a fit me in the Greek. It means to let something go. John was going, no, 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 no. You can't do this. Okay. It's because you're on mission. You're the king who's come. I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to baptize you. That's the profession of Christ. Let's look now at the profession, the second public profession, which is God the Father's profession. God the Father's profession. This is verses 16 and 17. Look at this. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Hey, Jesus was baptized. He went into the water because it says he came out up from the water. And that's important. When someone is baptized, it's important. It'll be important tonight at 5 p.m. Please come back. That's my infomercial. It might be the last time I say it. Probably not. Observing baptisms, hearing testimonies are important and they're special. But there's something special surrounding the baptism as well. And that is your heart and your prayer connecting with that person who's being baptized. That person testifies before God and before the congregation. And then that person is embraced in love and affection and invited into the family of God to say, we are affirming your identification with Christ and your identification with his body. Welcome home. That's baptism. It's, it's sort of coming from two directions, right? What the person does and how the person is received. Here, Jesus is baptized and then heaven opens up and he is affirmed by his father in that baptism. It's incredible. The emphasis of the verses here are more on what happens after Jesus' baptism than Jesus' baptism in and of itself. It's the receptivity. It's the applause from heaven that rains down on the person who is identifying in the gospel. That's what Jesus is doing. He is being applauded by his father. It says he was baptized, which means to be immersed. And immediately he went up, which as Jesus comes up out of the water, his head is surfacing out of the water. 
The heavens were opened to him and the spirit of God is descending down upon him. So Jesus is coming up and the spirit is coming down. The language here is interesting. It says the heavens were opened up. That word opened is the idea of a gaping mouth. It's the idea of the mouth of the sky is opening up over Jesus Christ as he comes up out of the water. It's used in other passages of a heart opening up or people speaking openly. It's the openness of heaven. Heaven is opening up over Jesus Christ. And the spirit of God is viewed as literally climbing down or descending down as if a dove and coming to rest on him. I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit a little bit there. Is the Holy Spirit coming actually in the form of a dove? Did the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, look like that animal? There's a picture of a pigeon or a dove coming back in the name of hope when, when the waters receded and, and Noah's ark is left and his family is left whole and animals. There's a picture of hope there. I'm not sure that the Spirit of God actually looked like the bird, like in the stained glass windows that we see in churches. But it really doesn't matter one way or the other. We know the earliest reference to the Holy Spirit is where in our Bibles? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. 2. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters of the deep. So hovering, it's bird-like. But the Spirit of God is also ruach in the Old Testament compared to wind that comes upon people. In John 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, the, the wind blows where he wills or it wills, and it's pneuma there. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's the third person of the Trinity of the Godhead. When Peter confronted Ananias and Sapphira, he said that you have lied to the Holy Spirit, a person who is God. We are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons of the Trinity, though there is one God, Deuteronomy 6. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-essential, co-eternal, equal in power. It's amazing. They, they act within their individual roles. You have God the Father, God the Son, who is submissive to the Father, God the Holy Spirit, who is always adoring and promoting the Lord Jesus Christ, who inspired Scripture, who comes as the Spirit of truth, who is, Lord willing, illuminating your heart to believe that this account is real and meaningful to you right now. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ is the intercessor between God and man. And the Father is our Heavenly Father, who we know personally and intimately as adopted children. The inner Trinitarian fellowship, the love relationship between the three represent perfect community from all of eternity. The community that we are invited into to fellowship in. The Trinity is on full display here in this text. God the Father extolling, speaking love over the Son. The Son, fully God, fully man, being baptized, who's come in the form of a servant, taking on human flesh to be baptized. And then the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit resting upon him. Perfect picture of the Trinity. It's amazing to me how people will distort the Trinity. They'll disbelieve the Trinity. There are heresies that 
have cropped up over the years that you need to be warned of. People will try to act like they have some secret knowledge about the Trinity. There's one called modalism, which is uh, it's a lot of Pentecostal oneness churches believe. They believe that God manifests himself in one of the three persons of the Godhead at a time. So he's either the Father, either the Son, or either the Holy Spirit. Not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit coexisting all at the same time. God exists in one manifestation at a time. That's called modalism. It's a heresy from ancient years um, that was called Sabellianism before. It's not to be believed. And then there is a kenotic heresy, which is the idea that Jesus came in his humanity and was not fully God again until he was at baptism. And at baptism, when the spirit came, it's the divine logos came upon Jesus and empowered him and made him God again. And the reason that people promote those heresies is to promote the idea of dominionism, to say you can be just like Jesus, like a little God who's walking around in your humanity and then one day you're struck with the extraordinary power of the Spirit and then you have the power to proclaim things or, or speak things into existence or have superpowers. And these are to be rejected. But you need to look out for these cults, for these false religions and false teachings. The Trinity is not easy to fully grasp and understand. It actually is incomprehensible to our finite minds. It's been said that if you try to fully understand the Holy Spirit, you'll lose your mind. But if you reject any part of the Trinity, if you try to fully understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. If you try to reject any part of any member or part of the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. That's what people say. It's just interesting. We have to affirm the Trinity from Scripture and believe God the Father God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, equal in power, equal in essence and substance. The Holy Spirit isn't almost God. Jesus isn't almost God. The Father isn't the only God. They're all one God. There was a heresy in the, or a debate in the church um, in, in 451 called the Council of Chalcedon, where people were battling over whether or not Jesus truly was of the same substance as God the Father. And it was substance, the Greek word, usius. And so the debate was, was over one letter difference between two different words. One is homoousius, meaning of same substance, or homoousius, with that little like Greek letter that's for the letter I in our English, homoousis of like substance. Jesus is almost like the Father, but not fully God. Listen, those kinds of uh, nuances matter. We have to say God is God, and he's the God of Scripture. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. If you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. You've seen God. Jesus is God. We have to hang on to that and we have to understand that we, I like the idea of praying to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, but I'll say just as quickly that all three persons are God and all deserve our honor, praise, and worship, right? Why did the Spirit of God rest on Jesus? The Spirit of God descended like a dove to come and rest literally upon him to anoint Jesus as king. Nobody's confused in this moment. Who's the king? The Spirit of God is identifying Jesus as king, anointing him, anointing him, just like Samuel anointed David and poured oil over him. Jesus is anointed in that moment. It's, a, it's not giving Jesus 
anything that he didn't have, but it's, it's identifying him for who he was. He said as much in Luke chapter 4 when he pulled the scroll in the, on the Sabbath day in the synagogue early in his ministry. He's quoting from Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set the liberty of those set to liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor favor. He was anointed to preach. He was set apart as king to be a preacher. He wasn't a king just to sit on the throne and sit there idly. Guess what? Just like I've called all of you to back into pioneering service within our church. You have the Holy Spirit. You have been given a gift by God. Don't sit idle. Don't sit idle on it. Come public with it. Minister, serve, give, contribute, be a part of things by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was doing. He was proclaiming truth, proclaiming redemption. The king has come and he's come as our savior. Well, finally, verse 17, God the Father speaks. You have God the Son who's baptized, God the Spirit who lights upon Jesus, and then God the Father who is portrayed as a voice from heaven. Again, John 4, 24 says that Jesus, or that God the Father is spirit. Those who worship him, spirit, worship in spirit and in truth. He's spirit. He does not have a body like ours. God the Father is represented by his voice, from heaven, the word is phonon and its voice, which is a loud declaration of thunderclaps. Everybody is hearing this. Everybody's party to this voice from heaven. This isn't an isolated message just to Jesus or just to John and Jesus in this moment. There are thousands of people around watching Jesus be baptized, observing the Holy Spirit descend from heaven, and then the voice comes down from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There's a lot of things that a lot of people will say about you in your lifetime. The only person that says something about you or me that really matters is one person, that is God the Father, right? Especially in heaven one day when we stand before him, we want him to say, enter into the joy of your master. You are my son, get in here. When I see you, I see my son, Jesus Christ, wrapped around you. You have the righteousness of Christ. You're fully forgiven. Come in. That's what matters. And God the Father is affirming his son. God could not be more pleased. He could not be more proud. He could not be more excited than he is in this moment. The applause from heaven is raining down. The plan of God was always for the son to come as redeemer, as lamb, this was not some second-rate plan. This was not um, you know, something that was not foreordained from the foundation of the world. It was always planned for Jesus to be the Savior. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God the Father and God the Son were in complete communion, complete unity, complete fellowship in eternity past, making this plan together for Jesus to come. Philippians 2 says, Jesus chose to take the form of a servant to put on flesh. He who was rich became poor for our sake that we might experience the riches of God. Do you realize that? Jesus 
chose to follow the plan and he was in perfect inner Trinitarian fellowship about this plan. First John two verse verses one speaks of how we have an advocate with the father and the advocate is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was in proston theon. He was in face-to-face eye contact with the Father over this plan all along. And God the Father is affirming that Jesus has entered into this plan, is fully committed, fully engaged to be solid as the Savior for your sin and solid as the solution for your righteousness, which will come by the death of his Son on the cross. Jesus is fully committed to die for your sins. That's what he was saying here. And he did die for our sins. The father affirms this. He is his beloved son. He loves his son. There's intimacy and fellowship and warmth. And he's well pleased with Jesus' willingness to be our savior for our sins. Psalm 2-7 is part of what the father is quoting. It says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Isaiah 42-1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This was all part of God's plan. And this is God the father's heart spilling out publicly in a public profession to a watching world. John 1, I love to sneak this thought in. Again, he didn't know Jesus before this moment. I mean, he knew of him. He knew he was the forerunner of him. He knew he was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. But he didn't fully grasp who Jesus was until the Spirit of God was upon Jesus and the sky opened up and the Father's voice rained down. It says, I myself John 1, John 1, 33, this is John the Baptist speaking of himself. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. Listen to these words. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's God the Father telling John the Baptist. When the spirit of God rests on him, this is he. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. Listen, Christianity is becoming less and less popular. The air is becoming more and more thin. The oxygen is becoming thinner. But we need to take deep breaths and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm identifying with him. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm going somewhere else. I'm identifying with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's why we come public. We come together to bolster our confidence in the gospel. We need this. We need to have hope these days, and we need to give hope. When the two are baptized this evening at 5, the one little boy from the youth group will stand. He'll testify. And as a 10th grader, he'll speak of his love for Jesus Christ. And guess what? You'll sit there and you'll go, I want to be bold like him. And when the gentleman comes after and says, I needed to know Jesus Christ. I needed to let things go and I needed to live for Christ. And Jesus changed my life. You'll say, you know what? I'm identifying with him. That testimony is my testimony. And we're doing this together. Baptism matters because it's identification. It's public testimony that we believe in Jesus Christ.